Hi, and welcome to Birth Trauma Training for Birth Workers, the podcast with me, Dr. Erin Bow, clinical and perinatal psychologist and coach. Now today, I thought I should get around to start talking you through some of the different treatment modalities that there are for trauma. And there's a reasonable amount, depending on which way you want to go. Um, I think it's important to keep a few things in mind. One is that there is no best fit for everybody. So whilst there are recommendations in terms of from the World Health Organization and other institutions, trauma is not a simple, straightforward, go off and do this thing and you will get better, which I'm sure none of you were thinking anyway, but just to make that clear, cognitive therapies, which is what I'm going to talk about today, have the best evidence, the most research and the most longevity outside of things like um, traditional Chinese medicine and some other kind of Eastern philosophies. But in terms of Western medicine approaches, I suppose, the cognitive therapies are the ones that I trained in the most and that have the best research evidence that we've got. But they definitely don't suit everybody. And in today's episode, I'm going to talk about the pros, the cons, and a little bit of what to expect if you or your client were going off to see a psychologist, potentially a psychiatrist, maybe a social worker, um, someone skilled in doing cognitive therapies, so CBT, cognitive behavior therapy, possibly exposure therapy, something like that, um, might be called something slightly different, but something along those lines um, for trauma and what that might look like. So let's get into it. So the World Health Organization recommends that there's essentially two top gold standard, the best of the best treatments for post-traumatic stress disorder and trauma. Those two are Cognitive behaviour therapy, CBT. Sometimes what falls under that um, might also be called exposure therapy. Sometimes what falls under that, again, is cognitive processing therapy. So all slightly different but kind of the same thing. And the other second one that they recommend is EMDR, so eye movement desensitisation reprocessing. What I'm going to talk to you about today is essentially cognitive behavior therapy and what that would look like. How many sessions do you have? Who can deliver it? Um, what does a session look like? What sort of you know outcomes could you expect to achieve? All those kinds of things. Now, I want to preface this by saying just because the World Health Organization says this is the best thing to do, it doesn't mean that that is what you or your client has to do. I am all for holistic support options and I don't really believe in saying here's one single thing that's going to help because we know, we cannot deny the fact that upwards of 40%, 40% of people who have some sort of trauma, who have trauma symptoms, who go and get a therapy, don't get better from that therapy. So there's a lot of variation and there's a lot of different factors that go into that. A huge part of it is not so much even the therapy itself, it's the fit with the therapist. Given that people have been through something where they felt their life was in danger, no trust, lots of betrayal, all of those sorts of things, the therapeutic relationship, whether you can sit in a room and feel safe with someone, is like 
possibly more important than anything else. So we need to keep that in mind. It's not necessarily what you do with someone, it's how you make them feel, whether you've got a good, strong, therapeutic relationship with someone. Now, if you've got that, fantastic. You start going ahead and doing the work. But it's difficult in the current climate, particularly in Australia, because if you want funding, you want to use your private health insurance if you've got it, or you want to use Medicare if you're eligible for that, you only get 10 sessions. 10 sessions for some people might sound like a lot. For someone like me who has been taught the gold standard really for any like treating anything with cognitive behavior therapy, particularly the more complex stuff like trauma is like 25 plus sessions. I used to have 24 sessions to work with with a client and it's just been scaled back and scaled back and scaled back. 10 sessions to work on trauma is sweet FA. Let's just be honest here. It's going to take three to five sessions at least to get someone to be able to sit in a room with me and feel comfortable. This is not the kind of thing that you can rush. This is not the kind of thing that you can just go off and do five sessions of therapy and you'll be right. This takes a lot of effort. It takes often a lot of uh, two steps forward, three steps back kind of thing. Clients who have trauma cancel all the time. They're late to sessions. They need to leave early. They really struggle to get themselves in that space. And of course they do because as I've spoken about before, there is no fuzzy puppy rainbow unicorn version of therapy. It's uncomfortable. And you are asking them to sit with that discomfort and learn to tolerate it in the promise that they're going to see some sort of result, which is really hard to do when you've been through a situation where you don't trust people and you've felt betrayed and you felt alone and you felt isolated and you're just so distressed that even sitting in a room with someone, even just the room itself, things might trigger you. And I talked about that um, in a previous episode with Nisha Gill, that the colour of a room, the smells, the sounds, all sorts of things can trigger people and you have to work with what's in front of you, not just sit down with a manual, flip open your book and go CBT, right, Episode one, episode two, it doesn't work like that. At least that's not how I work. So in saying all of that, let me talk you a little bit, like we're only sort of going to skim the surface in terms of what cognitive behavior therapy looks like. As I said, um, within cognitive behavior therapy, there's also something called exposure therapy, which exposes people, as you might imagine, to small snippets of their trauma. And it does that by using writing, by talking about it, by introducing pictures into your brain. So often it's not going to be on the spot. So what's called in vivo. Um, So there at the time exposure therapy because it's not practical and it's not ethical. So for someone who has given birth, it's not feasible or practical or ethical to take them back to the birthing suite or wherever it was that they were birthing the precious baby and go through all that again. So you would go through it again by doing writing, by looking at birth pictures potentially, by saying the words out loud, by imagining the pictures based on the premise that the brain doesn't know the difference between what's real and what's imagined. So by that thinking, we don't necessarily have to take people back to the scene of the crime, so to speak. You can, but it's not a typical thing that goes on anymore. Um, It might be 
helpful in some cases for people to go and meet their attacker in prison if that's something that they want to do or they want to go back to a scene where something happened to them but you don't have to Um, and for all sorts of insurance and ethical and legal reasons it's not um, as typical to actually go back to the scene where it happened it's more imaginal therapy imaginal exposure is what we're talking about so a huge component of cognitive behavior therapy cbt it requires you to know what your thoughts are it requires that we can even after a bit of prompting if you need prompting to be able to sit down and tell me what your thoughts are what did you think about that what was the images flashing through your mind what were the thoughts that you have what are the thoughts that you're having right now it's very 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 cognitive it's very you know from the neck up it's looking at the thoughts that you're having and looking for what's sometimes called hot spots. So parts of your thinking, whether it's images, words, sounds, phrases, things that the person is saying to themselves that are tricky, that are stuck almost. Like you imagine an old record or a CD stuck on repeat and you just can't get rid of it and you can't move it along. It's a piece of information that the brain has hung on to, I suppose, for lack of a better term, and it doesn't know what to do with. It's kind of just like suspended until you tell the brain to what you actually want to do with that information. So whether it's useful information, hang on to it, nah, toss it out, rework it, that kind of thing. So um, a huge part of the way that we can work through this is by writing. And you might do exercises like getting the client to write out what happened to them in as much detail impossible in the past tense. So this was happening, that happened, then this happened. So talking in the past tense, because people tend to talk um, in the past tense anyway, except sometimes when people are highly distressed, they start to talk in the present. And you might notice that actually as a sign of dissociation or as a sign of hyperarousal or hypoarousal. So someone's really distressed. When they start talking as if it's happening right now, that's a little trick actually that the brain has gone back into. I don't know what's real and what's imagined. I don't know what's past and what's present and what's future. I'm just reacting as if everything is unfolding in front of me like I'm watching a movie. Um, And so these hotspots tend to come with, I guess, what you might call automatic negative thoughts. So say, for example, you have a situation in which someone is birthing and they start to feel they have no control or they're in danger or they're stuck or they can't escape and they have a thought like that. I can't escape. I can't escape. This is never going to end. I'm dying. My baby's dying. I can't get out of this, that sort of thought. And it just plays over and over and over and over and over. And so what your task as a psychologist is to do is to work with that person's brain and help their brain realize that the threat has passed. So you don't need to keep flapping up all the intrusive thoughts and the memories and the things that the client doesn't want to be thinking about. We look at that from a cognitive perspective as the brain not realizing that the threat has passed and that when you can work with the brain to realize that the threat has passed, it will stop responding as if the trauma is still happening. So the nightmares, the flashbacks, the cold sweats, the anxiety, all of that will reduce. It won't necessarily stop automatically. It won't necessarily stop 
completely, but the person is going to get a lot of symptom relief by working on these, I guess, neural networks in the brain, by working on some of the information that's popping out in a really kind of um, scientific way. So sometimes people like this approach because you can look at it like put your scientist, you know, investigator hat on and treat this like this isn't a problem I have as a person. This is a problem I need to solve with my brain and how it's not doing what I want it to do. Just as you might think about, you know, your brain is a machine. If your computer isn't doing something you want it to do, you go and get help from someone who can tell it what it needs to do. Um, You know, if your car is making a funny noise and it's not doing something it should be doing, you go and get a checkup and you get someone to help you work through whatever that is. Similar sort of way of thinking about it. So a large component is writing and a large component is thinking about your thoughts. So this is a therapy that is very much suited to educated, doesn't have to be majorly educated, but definitely educated people who I suppose are more familiar with a middle-class Western philosophy, if you like, or education system, because it is, that's who it's targeted to. That makes sense, doesn't it? Hopefully. So the goal is to work with the thoughts and the beliefs so that the trauma the distress of the trauma is reduced. And it's based on, as I said, this idea of replacing a distressing thought with a neutral one or a positive one. So potentially after you've written that birth story in the past, you would then have the client write it in the present and have them rework that part where they're saying, I'm out of control, I'm going to die, I can't do this with what they would maybe find more useful if they went back and did it again, which is, again, not saying that what they did was wrong. We do the best with what we have at the time. But it's replacing that thought with, I'm okay, I will get through this, I can cope with this, it's unpleasant, but I will be all right, I've got hope, whatever it might be. It's not about changing the story to be something that it's not. For some people, they find that helpful. For some people, they like the almost um, fantasy storytelling part of it where you don't have to have your birth story be set in stone. Memories are fickle. They change with time and with all sorts of things. Some people prefer to change their story. So it's that less focus on, you know, the blood and the procedures and what was happening and it might even just be you know I imagine lying in a warm bath floating somewhere and then there was my baby like it's for whatever is going to help someone not about saying it didn't happen definitely not about placating or patronizing or trying to like make it all better and make it all go away but it's about what that client finds helpful whether they find it helpful to stay in the positive whether they find it more helpful to change the story so it's more neutral and their emotional reaction to it is reduced just depends depends on the person and what they want to work with but it's that taking the distressing thought like the I'm gonna die and retelling the story in the present so that your brain knows actually you're not gonna die because you're here you're safe it's unpleasant you maybe didn't feel safe but you actually are safe. So if that makes sense, it's not changing, it's not denying what happened. It's not making everything okay, but telling a story slightly differently so that that person has symptom relief and doesn't have nightmares every night and doesn't look at their baby and feel disgust, shame, terror, whatever it might be. Surely 
that is preferable to getting the exact details of the story exactly as they were, which aren't going to be exact anyway. If you talk to other people in any situation, um, you know, you'll find your doula or your midwife says, oh, this happened or that happened. You're like, really? I don't remember that. Did they say that? Did that happen? Did it? Everybody's got a slightly different version. And when you talk to more people about an event, different things creep in and people have all sorts of memory alterations anyway. We might talk about that in a different <laughs> podcast, how memory is so fickle. But for today, let's just talk about this idea of the brain doesn't know what's real or imagined. So using imaginal exposure works in much the same way as if you went back to the trauma site and almost did a redo of it. So it's like doing a redo, if that kind of makes sense. The pros. The pros of doing cognitive therapy are that it's evidence-based. There's a lot, a lot, a lot of research. If you Google PTSD, trauma and therapy or anything like that, CBT is probably going to be the most common thing that comes up in terms of something that's got good research evidence behind us. It's been used for a long, long, long time. Um, Some of the newer therapies that are out are arguably got more going for them, but they don't have that history behind them. And everything in medicine, birth in particular and psychology, is slow. So to see any sort of change in recommendations, we're talking decades. So the reason I think in part, not just that it, it works pretty well, it's the best of what we've got in terms of approaches for trauma in saying that cognitive therapy has got a lot of pros for it. It's got the history. It's got the evidence to back it up, which is why, in part, people are more confident to pour money into it for support. So it's one option anyway. So again, it is supported by the World Health Organization. It's supported by Medicare. Now, remember, you're only going to get a maximum of 10 sessions, which is not a whole lot to do anything. But the skills that you learn in CBT translate really well into other areas of your life. So if you're struggling with stress, if you're struggling with anxiety or depression or anything where you think, okay, I can see I'm feeling this because of a thought that I had, those skills translate really well in terms of how to make your life better, if you like. And it's actually quite easy to find a practitioner. Most psychologists in Australia, not all of them, but most of them, are going to be CBT trained because most of us, not all of us, but most of us have had CBT drummed into us from a very early age in our careers as this is the best gold standard treatment that we've got. So this is what we're going to teach you. And it's in alignment with Medicare and insurance. So it makes sense. So look, it's potentially the best of what we have, but it still doesn't remedy all PTSD. The gold standard for CBT for PTSD, post-traumatic stress disorder, is more than 20 sessions. So you're looking at roughly 12 months of work at least. But then you remember Medicare is only going to give you a rebate for 10 sessions. So the client either has to fork out the rest of the payment, wait for a new calendar year. Um, So, you know, we're getting to this stage ridiculously where sometimes if, you know, I've heard of stories where people will say someone has contacted me for treatment and they can't afford it unless they get the rebate. So you're saying to them, well, you're better off starting your therapy in, say, September. So you can use your 10 sessions from September to December and then you start with another 10 sessions fresh in January the next year. And that's fucking ridiculous, but that's what we're working with um, to optimise people's therapeutic experience. But anyway, 
I won't go off on tangents. So I guess the thing is, um, again, with bulk billing psychologists, unlike GPs who get financial benefits potentially for bulk billing, psychologists, social workers, other people who can provide mental health services under bulk billing, there's no financial incentive to do that. You get paid the minimum fee if people don't turn up or they're late and chew up half the session you're not able to recover that fee. So a lot of um, people simply can't run a private practice by bulk billing because you just can't possibly cover your fees in the same way that a GP can who's, you know, billing for 15 minutes and then, you know, billing for something else and billing for something else. It's There's no incentive financially to do that. Um, so while there is the option, you're then limiting yourself, I suppose, to people who want to do it for the love of for the love of it or who are building a practice that's brand new and are hoping anyway I'm going off on a tangent but it's tricky to it's it's what I'm saying is it might be easy to find someone to start your therapy but let's say you start with someone and you don't get on with that person or you find out that they don't actually know very much about birth because they don't really have an interest. They might have an interest in trauma, but they're not really interested in the perinatal period or babies or anything like that. And so they don't have the nuances of knowing how to work with birth trauma potentially that someone who is more interested has, if that makes sense. So it can be easy to find someone, but let's say you find that first person and you don't get on with them or you don't like them or you don't like the room or it's not a convenient time or whatever it might be and then you need to find someone else. Like that's a common thing. A lot of um, clients aren't necessarily going to gel with the first person that they try. Or what also happens if you think about that, stages of change model people go back and forth so they maybe go to a session with someone okay that was unpleasant but all right I'll go again and then they stop and so they've used two or three sessions on one person something else came up at work a child was sick they got laid off at work something else happened and it was just too much or it wasn't the right time so they go back and they don't go for six to 12 months or something and then they want to start again and then they've still only got a number of sessions left on their Medicare plan and they need to start again. It's it's a back and forth process for a while, just something to consider. So apart from all the practical things in terms of how a client's going to pay for it, there's some other cons, I suppose, to this particular approach to therapy. Some clients can find it being interpreted as a bit blaming So it's your thoughts that's the problem. You know, it's all in your head. If you can just change your thoughts, you can change your life, that kind of thing. So you've got to be, um, I suppose, careful about what message that you're giving when you're delivering this therapy service and also how the client is interpreting that. So some people are quite happy to work with their thoughts and look at it like, okay, there's a glitch in the machine kind of approach, but for some people that doesn't really suit them at all. Um, Exposure therapy can also be very confronting. Um, As I said at the start, how you would translate this into in vivo exposure, so at the time, you can't really replicate birth. You can only kind of imagine it. And for some people, even imagining it and talking about it and writing about it, again, it's too confronting. Um, My view, which... It's a bit different to what I trained in, but my view is you don't necessarily have to remember the trauma in exact detail. You don't have to go through all the nitty gritty in order to get healing, in order to get recovery. 
But this approach does rely on the client to keep remembering, which can be very healing and it can be very therapeutic and it can really help reduce um, the negative impact of the thoughts. But for some people, it's going to be too confronting and it's going to be too hard. And so you want to be careful about not setting people up to feel like, okay, it was, a, it was enough for me to get here, to make the appointment, to get myself through the door. And now I'm finding it so difficult and I'm finding it so confronting that I can't keep coming. It's another failure. So now I've failed my birth. I failed therapy. It just for some people can set them up for feeling worse potentially. And every single client I work with, with this approach for trauma, I am really, really, really dead honest with them and say, this is going to be uncomfortable. You and I have got to feel super, super, super like we get along, that we are comfortable in each other's space, that you are more than comfortable to ask me to make changes about the environment, to stop, to slow down, to wear a different jumper because the colour that I'm wearing is bothering you, to not wear that perfume because you can't stand it, like to make the room colder, to make the room warmer. Don't look at me look me in the eye, like whatever it might be, you just have to be so comfortable with your therapist. And if it's not there, it's not going to work. I just don't think it's going to work. So for people who, you know, are already distressed and already have that sense of failure, going along to someone who is promising them, yep, this is going to make you better. This is going to fix everything when we know that potentially it won't. Remember that upwards of 40% of people don't respond to first line treatment whether that means they need to find a different treatment or find a different therapist, it takes a lot. And I'm always really respectful. And as I say, respectful is the fact that, God, it takes a lot to get people in the room. To even just get in the room is a huge, huge, huge milestone for people who've had trauma. They're already feeling shit. They're already feeling like a failure. They're already feeling all of those things. And you don't want to add to that. But doing cognitive therapy is potentially going to feel worse before it feels better. And I always tell clients that. I'm always like, let's carve out some time. Let's look at the next few weeks. What's happening in your life? Where will you be going immediately after your session? What are you going to do for yourself? Where are the kids? Who's picking them up? You can't sit and do therapy effectively if you think you're going to be getting a phone call from daycare any minute, or you're going to be getting a phone call from work saying to come in, or you're going to be getting a phone call about a birth potentially. I mean, you can do it, but being able to really sit and be in the moment is important and that can be really hard to do, um, particularly, as I said, because it gets a whole lot worse before it gets better. And it's not going to be a great um, approach for people who aren't very self-reflective, um, who sit there and say, I don't know what my thoughts are or I don't really know what happened there. And I think um, you want to be really careful about – prodding and prompting too much for content that maybe isn't there. Like for the sake of doing the therapy properly, saying you need to remember this, can you, can you really try hard and remember the details? Because that's when things like recovered and repressed memories start to creep in that I feel a bit iffy about, um, which I'll talk again about in another podcast when we talk about memory and the fickleness of memory. Because if you're forcing people to try and remember something for the sake of remembering it and you can't really demonstrate how that's going to be therapeutically beneficial for them, I really don't think you should be doing it. And you will meet those people who feel if only they can remember what happened to them, 
then they'll be able to deal with it, then they'll be able to recover. And I just simply don't think that's true. Um, And sometimes you even meet people who have difficulties in life and are convinced that there must have been some trauma that happened to them. So then they have a self-fulfilling prophecy. They go looking for it. They then maybe find an unsuspecting, like, you know, best case unsuspecting and naive, worst case manipulative and self-indulgent therapist who says, oh, you want to remember something? Like, it's quite easy to implant memories is what I want to say. And I think I feel quite passionate about not selling the idea that you have to remember everything in order to make progress and have to make recovery. That's simply not true. From listening to the rest of this podcast, you'll see that that's not true because there are plenty of other approaches. It's just one approach. But for people who are really, really, really up in their head, who are maybe um, not ready for or not interested in some sort of approach that's neck down potentially. They don't want massage or acupuncture or anything like that. They just want to work on the thoughts and talk about what happened. It's a really good approach and it does have, you know, a really good effectiveness rate. My approach would always be to, as I said, carve out the potential for this is going to be maybe 12 months of work. Maybe not, but it's every client asks this, how long is it going to take? How long is a piece of string? I don't know. I don't know how long it's going to take for your body to regulate while it's sitting here talking about trauma. I don't know if you're going to get sick or if your kids are going to get sick or you're not going to be able to come on the day that we scheduled or all that kind of stuff. Um, so it's it's an option. It's there. It's potentially the best one that we have, but it's not the only one that we have. Um, it's, you know, in the past been the main way that I have worked with trauma, but it's not the only way I work about trauma. This is just you know, the Reader's Digest version, the shortened version of what cognitive behaviour therapy um, will look like. A lot of talking, a lot of writing homework, a lot of going over in a lot of detail. And, um, you know, before we do that, a lot of setting the groundwork for making sure that people are comfortable in the space, getting them to be able to reduce their heart rate and their breathing rate and put the brakes on, so to speak, um, before we go turning on the accelerator and ramping everything up. So for my clients, not everybody works this way, but for my clients, I really don't even want them to start talking about the trauma in too much detail before I can see and they can see that they have the ability to regulate their bodily sensations and their emotions. Because I think I like to start off with confidence building and a sense of mastery so that even if we're just looking at, okay, my heart rate is like 10 out of 10, you can't learn new information if your heart rate, your distress is 10 out of 10. Your memory system shuts down, your cortisol and your adrenals flare up and it's not effective for learning new information and doing new work. So the first thing for me that always has to happen is that mastery over your distress. So even if you're 10 out of 10, I want people to get to at least a five, maybe can work with a seven, maybe, but we wouldn't be doing any hardcore work yet with the understanding that sometimes people are not going to get to zero out of 10 or one out of 10. Like going and doing therapy, it's um, potentially not like lying on the beach with a cocktail in the warm sun. Like it is distressing and that's 
why, you know, it's the good work to do because you are uncomfortable and you're putting yourself in situations where you're really challenging yourself. But I don't want clients to feel so challenged that they actually are fearful of the space, they're fearful of me and all they want to do is run away and it's just reenacting the trauma again for them all over. There has to be a lot of rapport building and a lot of, um, yeah, scanning the environment and making sure that there's no changes that need to be made in terms of temperature and smells and sights and all that kind of stuff um, and that takes work. Um, as I say, mastery first, bit of confidence building before you get into any of that kind of stuff. So look, if you're thinking about treatment for a client or for yourself, there's different people that you can approach. And I don't want this to sort of get into like, um, I don't know, shelving different levels of who's a better practitioner than who. As a general rule of thumb, though, a clinical psychologist, particularly someone who's a clinical perinatal psychologist, listen to me blow my own trumpet, I know, I'm saying this for a reason though rather than just self-indulgence, <laughs> bear with me, is going to have two pivotal things. One is they're going to have the core training in post-traumatic stress disorder. How does it work? They also have the background information about childhood development, attachment, personality disorders, drug use, all those sorts of things that play into trauma because when you've got trauma, it's not just the trauma, it's all the other stuff around that that you potentially need to understand and know to work with. So a clinical psychologist is well positioned to do that. Now, not all clinical psychologists know anything about birth or really anything about pregnancy. Um, Some of them are going to be looking for postnatal depression or postnatal anxiety based on the symptoms that people are describing. And that's just kind of a thing that people do. Birth trauma is not a specific thing necessarily that is taught. Um, It's just not like you're going to come across those people who don't even think birth is potentially traumatic and shouldn't even be considered, but that's a whole other thing to think about. In saying that there are generalist psychologists, counselors, social workers, um, who would be skilled in this area, but it's a, it's a case-by-case basis. So I guess the way I think about it is if you're talking about specific mental health where potentially some understanding of um, psychopharmacology and mental disorders is necessary because it's complex, you would start with the clinical because at least you've got a base level of training. Once you go under that and everyone's like generalists, so they don't have a specific qualification. That's not to say that they're not going to be a good psychologist or therapist or social worker or counsellor. It just means you need to probably think that little bit more about researching what's this person's skill set? Have they got experience in birth trauma? What sort of evidence-based practice are they using? What research are they using? Are they updating their knowledge? All that kind of stuff. Because the last thing that you want is choosing someone and then going along and, as I say, they maybe don't even think to examine the birth. They don't really think to ask any questions about it in particular Um, because, of course, don't forget, a lot of birthing people who have trauma after the birth don't know that what they're experiencing is birth trauma. What they know about is, I've heard of anxiety, I've heard of depression, my mood's not good, I've got nightmares, but they don't necessarily automatically think post-traumatic stress disorder. So it goes back into that thing about not assuming that people know what they need, not assuming that a general practitioner even knows what they need. So I think with birth trauma, you just want to be careful about who who you're accessing. So someone who's got an interest in perinatal health and perinatal mental health is well positioned potentially to help someone with that. 
it just gets into, at least in Australia, the competitiveness stuff about clinical psychologists attract a bigger rebate. So you're talking about getting $124.50 back from a session versus getting about 86, I think it is. I don't know the latest numbers, but that's a rough estimate. So that's not necessarily to say that that's an indication of like value or evidence-based one is better than the other. It's just that's a whole nother debate. So there is that to consider about um, who you're going to seek. Not, I wouldn't just be going to any general person. Even someone who says they've got a general interest in trauma doesn't mean they understand birth trauma, doesn't mean they understand all the nuances of postpartum and what it's like to be at home with a newborn while you're trying to deal with this stuff anyway. So that would be like the first line of stuff I would consider. And then I always encourage people to think about something holistic on top of that. So doing something from the neck down if they're open to that. So it might be yoga. It might be going to a mindfulness group. It might be going and doing some somatic experiencing work. It might be going and doing um, horse therapy. It might be Chinese medicine, all the other kind of things that we'll talk about in this podcast. But doing something in addition to the tricky stuff, uh, which is the cognitive work, to add a bit of a buffer and just add in some layers. And I think people can choose whatever they want to choose. There's no kind of um, standard, yep, you have to do this in order to get better. We just know that. So similarly for birth workers who've got vicarious trauma, similar kind of thing, It might be, and I've seen this all the time, that you end up going and getting support for bullying or getting support for something like work stress kind of stuff and then it trickles down and, oh, so you've actually been watching these really traumatic births unfold. You're getting nightmares. You're fearful of birth. Remember, 8% of Australian midwives are fearful of birth, like phobic of birth. This is a real, real thing that's happening. So it's giving you a bit of an outline, I guess, about um, what your options are. Happy to chat more about it, but that's uh, probably all I'll say about cognitive therapies today. Don't forget, if you want information and updates about the online training course that's coming out, so birth trauma training for birth workers, go to drerin.com.au and there's a sign-up form there. And I also give some updates about what's happening in the closed Facebook group. So if you search Dr. Erin Birth Trauma Training in Facebook, it should come up um, and you can get invited that way. I ask people some questions just about like, what are you struggling with? What do you want to know? What's your profession? Because that helps me in as much as possible. I want this course to be a co-production, co-design sort of thing. So I want to make sure that I'm actually giving people what it is they actually want. And so I'm starting to build in some ideas from that based on what um, people say. And you can always contact me and just like kind of say, oh, <laughs> I'm stuck on this because this happens all the time, um, which then flows into things like thinking about whether you want to do mentoring and supervision. That's two things that I offer. I also do some therapy. It doesn't necessarily have to be CBT. Everything at the moment is online um, just because I've given up my physical office space for now to work on this niching. Um, what else do I need to tell you? I've got some good episodes coming up, actually. There's trickling in slowly but surely as I get around to editing. But we've got some really cool stuff coming up about being confident 
as a birth worker with Erica Kramer. And we've got some juicy episodes, really, really good stuff to learn about, about working with people in the LGBTQIA community. What's it like birthing as a non-binary person? And how does that fit in with trauma? Because we're talking about like a marginalized set of people who are like among the most traumatized people you'd ever meet. So we really need to be mindful and open-minded about working with birthing people in the broader, broadest sense of the term. All right, enjoy the rest of your day and I will talk to you next time. See ya.